Today in the garage, we have Lior Shemish. Lior has appeared at all levels of court and continues to maintain a busy practice focusing on the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and defending her clients' constitutional rights. Lior has been part of groundbreaking cases involving the legalization of marijuana and the now infamous case of Regina and Hitzig. Lior defends all her clients vigorously and persuasively with both passion and compassion. Today we discuss Lior's practice with pretrial motions and her advice for lawyers in this area. Whether you're driving your Porsche KN, shredding your Epiphone, or prepping for a Section 7 application on excessive force, let's step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get a tune-up. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. What an introduction. Thank you. Thank you. No, thank you. Um, you are a venerable counsel. Uh, you stand up. Uh, you are able to articulate for your clients. And if you can share how important it is in, in the life of a criminal file, how important uh, pretrial motions are. So uh, I obviously sat down last night and tried to think, you know, what is a pretrial motion? I mean, oftentimes we're busy doing our thing at work and we don't actually sit back and actually articulate what it is. And so in criminal court cases, oftentimes the pretrial motion is your lifeline. Uh, it's your opportunity, I say, to sort of reset the chessboard or put everyone back to the starting line before the horn is blown. And it's an opportunity to ensure that the checks and balances in the system are operating and have operated fairly and lawfully before a trial begins. And so the pretrial motion is the tool, uh, if you will, to empower your client, to ensure that if required, tainted evidence is excluded, a violation is recognized, and that there are consequences for misconduct and poor behavior on the part of the police. And so this empowerment allows the defense to actively balance the playing field and make sure that it's deemed fair and that any poisonous aspect of a case can be hived off to ensure uh, such fairness. So like the drugs, the guns, the statement, the DNA, the phone, the computer, the data, all of that can be excluded in order to ensure that any case going forward goes forward fairly. And so sometimes those cases, or mo most often those cases, don't go any further. And so in short, the pretrial motion is so significant uh, that I say that they're the foundation of the criminal court case and they're needed to ensure that your client's voice is heard at the outset. So a client comes to you. Yes. Um, first interview, you find out uh, there's something that, you know, on your smell test, there's something awry here. Yes. What is it that you're looking for? What do you discuss with your clients to sort of understand what has happened with their interaction with the police? So the client's always the best historian, right? Because the client obviously knows everything before you know anything. And so I always listen to my clients quite attentively. I never take what they say for granted, of course, but I listen to them quite in intensely. Um, and get their story, if you will, their narrative. I take pretty detailed notes. I ask questions uh, typically about why and how they believe they were arrested. And usually they give you some pretty good uh, brownie points as far as this is where I, I think I was arrested. And that usually goes a long way to how I begin to think and focus on a, on a file. But when I get the file, um, how do I examine it? So first things first, I go through a checklist, if you will, on the hows and whys my client is arrested. So number one, how was the client arrested, detained, or questioned? Was this done lawfully, legitimately, and was it done in accordance with the law? 
did the police have the requisite grounds? What were those grounds? And as I ponder those questions, I'm thinking about the client's constitutional rights. Was there a search? How was that done? Uh, was the client aware of his rights to counsel and were they provided? How were they provided? Seizure, was there a seizure? What was seized? How and where? Was there a warrant? There's a checklist of things that I'm going through in my mind, usually surrounding the charter, of course. Um, and so I take what the client has said, I look at the file and then the pictures, you know, starts to emerge. So you got disclosure, you got your clients right. information, um, before you develop the argument, I, I'm sure it's germinating. Yes. Um, do you look for further disclosure? Do you narrow it down and, and try to, to try to hunt for things from the police and use them as a resource? Yeah. So. I, I pride myself on being someone who usually digs quite a bit. Um, if I think something's there, I usually continue to persist. Um, you know, radio communications. I know lots of lawyers don't always ask for them. I always ask for them. Onboard cameras, um, video surveillance in the neighborhood. I'll often get my young lawyers here to go out and find out if there are, you know, video surveillance cameras in the neighborhood or in the surrounding area to where the person was arrested. We've often gone out on our own and obtained video footage. Um, so I, I, I think as you're thinking about what those charter arguments might look like down the road, you're acting almost like a little bit of an investigator yourself and trying to determine how can I strengthen this argument? I know it's there and I'm, I may not have all the tools at the moment, but there are other ways by which the defense can um, you know, strengthen their arguments. It's very important, I'm sure, to bring context to the content that you have. Yes. Because I, I, I would imagine it helps develop the strategy as well, because there's a difference between bringing the application and understanding how that's going to unfold and how you're going to uh, bring it end up before a judge for a decision, for them to view or review what has been done by the police. Absolutely. So in most war, like just for example, most warrant cases, just because I do a lot of, of warrant cases, the first document you ever read is obviously the information to obtain. So sometimes it comes quickly, sometimes it doesn't, you have to wait till you get it. Um, some are small and short and concise and some are massive and, and long, you know that. Um, but when you look at the information to obtain, I tend to put the disclosure aside and just really focus on that document because that document really is sort of the, the narrative of the entirety of the case. It usually gives you a pretty good snapshot into what kind of case this is. But when you look at the, the warrant and you have a good idea of the roadmap, if you will, of why the police have targeted your client, you then go back to the disclosure, look at all the surveillance notes and make sure everything sort of becomes a mirror image. And if it isn't, then you have your aha moment. Okay, there's something awry here surveillance notes don't seem to be saying the same thing as the information to obtain. And then you start to develop your arguments. So I usually start with that search warrant first, then go and look at, at the disclosure and make sure, again, I go through a checklist in my mind, what's here, what's missing, you know, what, what's right, what's wrong. Just from a practical level, um, you did mention that sometimes ITOs will come quickly and sometimes they don't. Yes. Um, I, 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 lawyers, do understand that as a result of uh, uh, a warrant being issued, many times they're sealed. The Crown has to go through a procedure to unseal, mm -hmm. redact what they believe is required to redact based on the law, mm -hmm. and then give you the balance of it. If it's not coming 
sort of in a reasonable fashion. Mm -hmm. You have delay on one side and you have your client's rights that you want to protect. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with those two competing rights? Yeah, so it's usually the first document I ask for on a case when there has been a seizure. I, it's the first document I, I traditionally ask for. Um, and if it's not coming quickly, then you continue to write and you paper trail everything. So all communications with the Crown about how long it's taking to get this search warrant is important. Uh, I'm following up again from my previous request of the search warrant. Uh, once again, I've written you on such and such dates and I still don't have the search warrant. Ultimately, I think at your judicial pretrial, a judge will help and intervene and say, what's taking so long? Uh, in large uh, project cases, as you know, it, it, it could take, you know, a really long time and you're sort of sitting and waiting as great as it is to get, you know, the one or two officers notes. That really is your meat and potatoes is, is the ITO. And until it comes, you're kind of sitting still, unfortunately. So there's only so much you can do to force the crown, you know, to give it to you quickly. But I think everyone at this stage, from what I've seen over the last couple of years, everyone is trying to move uh, the ITOs along as quickly as possible. I remember years ago, we would have to wait for them to bring the application to unseal. And now it's pretty pro forma. So it, it it's gotten changed. better. It has gotten better. Yeah. You end up with the uh, with the disclosure, yeah. the source documents, yeah. the ITO, you reviewed them all. You're, you've been able to articulate why there has been a charter charter violation. Um, how do you put together an application? How do you build your record? So, um, so traditionally when I uh, am reviewing a file, I'm taking notes, sort of my own cheat sheet about, you know, what are the arguments that I really want to develop? Um, and some are better than others. We know that. Um, some are there, but they're not strong. Uh, and my view is you bring them. You bring them because they're there. In other words, you know, the 10B violation, although it was a little bit of a delay on the implementational side, it's not going to win my day. It's not going to get me the case tossed. And it certainly may not even get me the evidence excluded. But cumulatively, there may be other breaches. So I'll usually on my cheat sheet write, you know, 10B, kind of. Uh, you know, good eight, good seven, and then I start to develop each of them. Um, and as you start to roadmap out the argument, you can see that it becomes kind of like an onion, right? And you start to peel away uh, all the arguments. And after a while, it's pretty obvious that you've got this great charter application that it's not just about one argument, but it's about several. And several combined will certainly assist. So I guess, um, you know, my advice is, if you feel like there's an argument there, bring it. Um, but if it's not there and you're really struggling to put it together, don't. Um, and so, you know, you really do have to sort of formulate in your mind whether or not there truly is an argument there or whether or not you're just really trying to find something that really isn't there. Um, so, so traditionally, that's what I do. So I have a cheat sheet and I write it all down and I develop it that way. And when you're bringing that application, putting together the paper record, any affidavits? Is there an affidavit of your client? Is there an affidavit of an assistant on information and belief? Yeah, so I used to, I quite frankly don't anymore. And some judges who are really, who are sticklers have called me out on it, um, but I haven't been called out on it for a long while. I know there are rules obviously, well, and the rules say you we'll should have, have, have an affidavit. We'll have to excite this part of the conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but I really don't. I, uh, I have to confess, um, I try to be detailed in the facts, 
but I don't give away too much. So mm -hmm. number one, I generally don't do it an affidavit unless it's a 10B and then, then I do. Usually uh, from the law clerk on information and belief, not from my client, unless it's something specific like an excessive use of force, then of course I have to file an affidavit from the client to say, these were my injuries, this is what happened, so on and so forth. But on a section eight regular search warrant. It's not required. No, I, I just, I don't. And quite frankly, I've now decided that I don't even give a sort of a detailed application. Now it's really more, these are the facts and I don't want to get into the discrepancies between the surveillance notes and the ITO. And I do that because I'd like to hold back some of my, you know, tools in my arsenal that when I come to cross-examine the affiant or whomever, or the sub-affiants, that they're not onto me. They don't know where I'm going. Because I often find uh, that Crown attorneys will, um, you know, speak to the affiant or sub-affiant and say what happened on such and such date without necessarily sharing the fruits of my application. I just find sometimes the probing questions will tip off the officers. So I find generally now I don't, I'm not as detailed. I used to in the past be quite detailed and lay it all out. Now I don't. Now I give them as much as I think is required to, pe to sort of meet the threshold. But aside from that, I'm, I'm not going to give you everything. I'm going to leave some behind. And w when you, you actually have uh, an affiant on the stand and you're of the view that either somehow they, they have some information about your application mm -hmm. and, you know, the crowns know not to share that, mm -hmm. but police are trained. Oh yes, and, and, and they're 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 very intelligent, mm -hmm. and, and sometimes we forget how intelligent they absolutely. Can be. Um, so they can decipher sort of where you're going. Absolutely. How do you deal with that uh, in a, in, a, in a question format with them and cross examining them? Do you have to let it go, or do you have to wait for the gem to be able to lock them down? Yeah, I think it really just depends. I mean, officers are, there are, they're seasoned witnesses. And I think oftentimes we forget about that. They've done this before. It's traditionally not their first rodeo. They know where you're going with your 10B questions. I find the obvious is not going to work. Um, and so, you know, traditionally you want to ask peripheral questions before you lock them into the answer you really you really want. I mean, going after them on you know a warrantless search and about reasonable probable grounds, they, they've been there, they've done that, they know it's coming. So I find you really do have to ask sort of peripheral questions in order to get them to a place where they, they think, oh, I probably shouldn't have, have said that. Um, so I think it just depends on, on the nature of the case, on the officer, on the facts. It, it really does just depend. I think you, you can't, take for granted that um, they don't know where you're coming from. They do. They oftentimes know where you're coming from. Can we talk about different types of pretrial applications? Yes. Uh, even let's start with a statement of large here. Yes. Any strategy, any suggestions for young lawyers, how to approach them to ensure that, that they try to get that statement kicked? Do you give up all the officers or do you narrow it down to uh, only the officer doing the interview, what is what is the way that you employ it? So I guess it just depends. Like on a voluntariness voir dire that, you know, is obviously the onus is on the crown. You want to hear from from everyone. On on a on a 10B, on a voluntariness, you, you in my mind, you want to hear from the most pertinent officers. However, there are scenarios where, you know, at the scene, an officer has been with your client and perhaps has influenced him in such a way that it may actually um, bear some fruit on the on the application later down the road. So I think, again, it depends on the facts. 
Um, I find with statement, uh, statement voir dires, uh, you know, the voluntariness slash charter application, you argue both. You, you never give up on, on both. Just because there's a voluntariness of voir dire being had, don't give up on the potential of bringing a separate and distinct charter application. So do you like to divide the two up or merge them or? Yeah, so I, I traditionally divide them up. Um, sometimes judges will ask, are they the same officers? And if so, can we blend them together? The tests are obviously different. One, you know, the onus is on the crown. One, the onus is on us. And so the test is different. So I always say divide them. I like to divide them. I know judges want to be efficient, as do we. But I think at the end of the day, because there's different onuses, kind of different tests, I say divide them. Let the crown meet its burden first, and if successful, great. Then we move on to the charter. If not, you know, we don't have to move on. Warrantless searches. Mm -hmm. My favorite. How do you approach it? So I always say they're like the diamond in the rough, right? Warrantless searches are, you know, that's like finding money in your pocket. Uh, you know, traditionally we have warrants and we're, we're inundated with their materials and sometimes they're quite good, which is unfortunate, but sometimes they are, they're really good and they're well drafted. But when you get a warrantless search, they're, they're meaty. That's the day you roll up the sleeves and say, all right, A, it's not my onus, it's somebody else's. And B, if it's warrantless, you know, something's awry. Something here that I can sniff it out. I don't even have to look too far, but the fact that they didn't go get a warrant um, I can probe and probe hard. So I say when it's the crown onus and they have to satisfy reasonable probable grounds, it's a good day for the defense. So look closely at your file, take very detailed notes, um, strategize well, and usually those cases turn out quite well for us. They do. Search warrants. You get the ITO. Yes. It's redacted in part. Yes. Do you always bring an application to try to cross-examine the applicant? So... You know, it's a good question because years ago I would have said, yeah, of course. And and now I say, no, not necessarily. Um, the, the truth is, depending on the case, you may have enough facially on the warrant and it may be staring at you right in the face. So why go further? Why allow the affiant to sort of rectify any problems or blemishes on the face of the warrant? So sometimes I think you got to take a step back, take a deep breath. I know we always have our gloves on and sort of wonder, you know, is this the best strategy to put a witness in the stand who's seasoned, who could probably, um, you know, rectify any problems going on here? Or is it better to just argue with what I have on the face of what I have? So, again, depending on the case, you may want to strategize differently. There are those cases where you need more. When you need more and you can run the risk of amplification by the yes. crown, um, what tips the scale for you for you to want to cross that appian? And, and if I can add to that question is, uh, what do you think of the test? Can you explain the test so that you can be able to cross the appian, even if you're restricted to certain areas? So the leave to cross-examine an affiant, I have to be honest, in the years that I have uh, have argued it, I find some judges get it, um, get it quickly and understand it and digest it. The test is not simplistic. It can be difficult. It's not supposed to be a heavy onus on our part. Um, but at the end of the day, the leave to cross-examine an affiant is um, a test that we have to satisfy. And so we have to satisfy the judge that there is a manner in which uh, our questioning will allow a judge to conclude 
that there has been something awry in the document itself. In other words, they haven't been honest about it or there's been some misrepresentation. Um, but it can't just be, um, you know, a fishing expedition. There has to be a reason that you're cross-examining the witness. And so I don't think you can take for granted that I'm undoubtedly going to be permitted to cross-examine the affiant. You do have to seek leave um, and you don't always get it, quite frankly. The times that you do get it, um, it should be concise. It should be a narrow cross-examination on the issues that you want to explore. So number one, you've been permitted to cross traditionally in a concise area. And number two, um, you ought to stay within those boundaries. Um, and more often than not, when you're seeking leave, you're seeking it on a very specific point. In other words, uh, you know, officer says, uh, saw your client, uh, you know, performing a hand-to-hand -hand transaction on the corner of Queen Street, where the surveillance officer says, you know, he was actually performing or having a conversation with someone. And so that misrepresentation, you may want to obviously explore. You may not want to. You may want to leave it at that and argue it at the end of the day. And so, um, these are difficult questions only because every warrant is so different. So there's no standard when it comes to a search warrant and there's no standard when seeking leave. You really do have to make a tactical decision about when best to seek leave. I do find that more often than not nowadays, I don't do it as often as I, as I used to, that I'm quite content to leave it to argument based on the nuggets that I find by comparing the document to the officer's notes. More often than not, I, I don't seek leave. So it's fair to say there aren't those Perry Mason type of cross-examinations where the officer says, you're right. I was uh, improper in my actions at that point. It in time. has happened. I mean, like I have had officers who I think think strategically it's better for them to say I made a mistake. Uh, you know, I probably could have drafted that better I wasn't aware of this law and I do know now and I'm more seasoned about it. And so there are the officers who I think try to trivialize, uh, although it sometimes in yours to their benefit, actually, because judges are impressed by their level of honesty. Uh, but I do find that I wouldn't necessarily call it a Perry Mason moment, but there's that moment of reflection where an officer says, yeah, I, I, you're right. I probably could have said that a lot better, but this is what I meant. Um, and so, I, you know, that's why I say sometimes it's better to just leave it the way it is without explanation, without permitting an officer to sort of gloss over the misrepresentation or the blemish that exists and leave it to a judge to, to look at it. If you're challenging the issuance of a, uh, of a uh, wiretap, Yes. Same type of advice yes. as a search warrant? Yes. Anything different or additional that you would want to include? Um, I usually challenge them the same way. I will say that wiretaps are far more difficult to challenge. I think in my career, I've been successful twice. Um, they're very difficult to challenge. I'm not saying don't challenge them. Of course, challenge them. I still bring the challenge. I'm just less focused on the win. Um, I, th I think I think wiretaps are, are, are a different different animal insofar as our level of success as opposed to a search warrant on a home or a car, et cetera. It is the same test. And on a step six 
Yes. Any step advice? six. So step six is our difficult. Oh, they're so difficult. Yeah. So I still call people to ask their thoughts on a, on a step six because I find that, again, I'll be in court, I'll be arguing a step six, a judge will ask me certain questions and I'll second guess myself about step six. I find like we're not all always on the same page when it comes to step sixes. And the truth is, is because I think everybody looks at them a little bit differently. Um, you know, a, a step six is a document that obviously goes to the judge. The judge has a copy of the redacted warrant. You're sitting in the room. Everybody else seems <laughs> to know what's going on except you. Um, and it's like you've been invited to this party and you're not really a part of it. So for those who are listening to the podcast that don't know what a step six is, the, the warrant is unredacted. It goes to the judge. The Crown has an unredacted warrant. And we, as the defense, have this blacked out document which none of us can really read or understand and so the judge who wants to have this open dialogue with the crown um will either say should we have the defense step out or should we be doing this secret conversation with each other through sealed envelopes which i always find more uncomfortable i'd prefer to just sit outside and let them do their thing and then call me back when they're ready and um, so it's uncomfortable it is the law. So it is the manner in which things are done. Don't feel uncomfortable about it. And so far as something's going awry or nefarious is going on, that is the way it's done. Uh, and then they call you back in and they have some further questions or they'll give you a little bit more information, traditionally not, not that much more. And then you get this judicially edited summary of what's behind the black lines. So the Crown and I have discussed it, says the judge, and this is the document you're going to get and take that to the bank that this is, you know, the information in the document. And so now you have like either an explanation as to why it's been redacted and supplemented with some sort of generalized idea of what's behind the black lines in order to preserve the anonymity of a confidential informant. And with that document, you should have enough to make your argument. It does crystallize. I swear it does. Um, sometimes not to your benefit, but sometimes it does crystallize to the point where you can understand it more, that your gut was right and that, you know, line A says the following, line B says the following. Um, and sometimes you can muster up an argument out of that and be quite successful. So all that being said, the whole step six conundrum is uncomfortable and um, a little difficult to necessarily navigate, but we all get through it. We do get through it. And one of the things that you said when we started this podcast was uh, you have to bring things. Yes. And even when it's uncomfortable, it, you know, it, it, if you can put together the argument and it makes sense, yes. bring it. Yes. Um, and so it's so important to do because when it does crystallize, it mm -hmm. might crystallize to your benefit or may not, but it's mm -hmm. part of the checks and balance of the system. Absolutely. And Absolutely. it's our job to ensure that uh, we push that envelope to make sure this democracy works. Can I move to, instead of 24-2 sort of discussions, the yes. 24-1, Section 7? Yes. Um, advice for young lawyers bringing a challenge uh, uh, to try to stay a case for a yeah. number of different reasons. So stays are hard. That's 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 what I would say. You know, stays are the clearest of cases. Um, what does that look like? What's the clearest of cases? Most lawyers think, well, mine's the clearest of cases. Another lawyer will say, no, actually, mine's the clearest of cases. And and the truth is, don't get caught up in the language of clearest of cases. You know, if 
you know, if it's an excessive use of force, um, you know, bring it. If you think you're, the officers went too far, but, you know, doesn't have a broken jaw in Tran and doesn't have, you know, a, a missing tooth, that's fine. At the end of the day, you know, on, on the client that I had, you know, is the, the removal of a, of a wire, of a wire bra. In my mind, that was wrong. It seemed wrong to me. It seemed wrong to leave my client standing there with her breasts exposed, even for, you know, a few seconds. And in my mind, that was worthy of a stay. For some people, they may say it's not. I thought it was, particularly with what she was charged with. So she was charged with impaired driving. I thought, how does that translate the removal of a, of a wire bra for someone who's charged with an impaired driving offense didn't make a lot of sense to me. So on excessive use of force cases, something a little bit different, different animal. Now you're relying on your client A as the historian, some injuries, how the police officers conducted themselves, was their use of force, you know, lawful and legitimate and balancing that. Usually I take, I take, um, I take instructions from my client, obviously, as we all do, but you know, I'm looking at pictures of my client who's black and blue, and I have officers who say he resisted, and I'm not really seeing the resistance, uh, either A, on their on their notes, or B, through injuries, and so on and so forth. And in, in my view, you know, you take your cues from your client. If he's black and blue, and he's taking pictures, and he's adamant that he was done wrong by the police, I bring the application. Um, and I don't hope for success. I drive it for success. So, you know, you are their voice and their advocate, and you're going to vigorously put their position before the court to suggest that this was not okay. This was not right. This was not okay. Is it the clearest of cases? That'll be up to the judge to decide. However, you litigate the case as if it's the clearest of case, right? Clearest of cases is an extreme remedy yes. at all. What are some other remedies when that's not available, but the breach is there? Yeah, so, you know, the exclusion of evidence is, is our biggest tool and um, our, our best gain and best hope, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you're bringing a charter application in order to exclude a piece of evidence that is obviously not favorable to your client. Um, so we know that. We know the exclusion of evidence exists. We also know that there is, um, if there is a violation, that there's a way to use that to your advantage at the end of the day to mitigate a sentence, to receive some sort of consideration by the court on sentence. Um, so that's another methodology by which you can use the, the breach um, to, your, to your advantage. Um, trying to think if there's any other. I, I know, any I know other. that uh, there are times during a jury trial where you may be bringing an application, but need to see how things unfold, whether the fairness of the trial has been affected or not, whether it could be recovered with some instruction, which I think is weak, but uh, there are applications uh, yeah. out there. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's tough. Yeah, it's tough. Listen, the biggest is your exclusion. We, I mean, we all wait for the magical words, you know, the, the gun is excluded or the drugs are excluded. And then that usually guts the Crown's case and we don't go forward. There are cases sometimes where you do have some merit in the trial itself on knowledge and control or other, you know, meritorious arguments. But I find with a lot of my cases, unfortunately, it sort of rises and falls on the charter application. And so that is why you put your most effort 
into your pretrial motion is because, you know, the gun's all, uh, you know, either strapped to the waist or the, the drugs are in the pocket or they're in the car or in the house um, and you don't have much else to litigate. So your effort really is focused on the pretrial motion, which is why I started this by saying it's sometimes your lifeline um, and more often than not, it's your lifeline. It is. And um, in preparing for the pretrial. Yes. And have you ever gone through a judicial pretrial and say, okay, here's the argument. I'm going to argue this in front of the judge. If I lose, my client's prepared to accept the resolution if it's X. Can you do that strategically? Yeah, I think you can. I think um, I think now, too, oftentimes uh, in judicial pretrials, judges want to be efficient. They want to talk about timelines, but we're very focused on time and using our time efficiently and how long will this take this court uh, case take. Um, and so I find that we're, we usually tend to focus on time more than anything else. And as a result, I find most judges want to know if at the end of this charter application you lose, uh, does the, the defense intend to fold tent at that point and go home? Or, you know, how long will this trial take? I used to say it'll rise or fall. And, and I found that that maybe wasn't the best strategic thing to do. So I always say, well, we may have an issue on, on, on one minor issue, and I give them sort of the shortest timeline. I think other times the writing's on the wall, and judges who have seen what your case is and, and crowns who know what your case is know you're full of it, uh, that it will rise and fall on the, on the charter application. I will say this, too, because I think it's important. At the end of a pretrial motion, if you lose, um, I always want to afford my client the opportunity to visit with an appellate lawyer if they think they've been wrong by or I've done something improper, you know, or, or the judge has, has not given them the result they wanted. And so I always say, don't ever plead guilty at that point. Uh, always concede the Crown's case and, and allow the client, if he has an appeal, to, to appeal. Um, and let somebody else take a look at it with a fresh pair of eyes to, to make sure that, A, I haven't done anything incorrectly, and B, the judge got it right or wrong. Um, and so I say at the end of a pretrial motion, if you're unsuccessful, don't plead. Don't ever plead your client guilty. Let, let, them, let them move to the, to the next stage. It is so important from a practical Absolutely. Uh, level, um, just so that young lawyers know how to do this. You've lost the motion. Yes. You, you say, okay, the Crown can read in evidence. I'm not yes. going to take issue with it. You call no evidence and let the judge make the decision. Yeah. And and at that point, you know, obviously, your client's going to be found guilty and you continue to obviously represent them effectively. But at least you've pre preserved their right to appeal that that charter ruling, um, you know, with either yourself or, or with someone else. I think it's important. Any fun war stories you'd like to share with us as to... You know, I, 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 I had a gut feeling. Uh, I, I knew I was up against this huge wall that I had to scale for my client, but I did it and I was successful. I know there's a number of them. There are. Um, you know, the case that really always sticks with me and it it kind of worked out to my benefit, it kind of didn't, is, is the case of DIN, D-I-N-H. So that case, I find, always speaks to all the different things about a pretrial motion. So you've got the excessive use of force. You've got the exclusion of some evidence and not all the evidence. And then you have the mitigation on, on sentence, the leniency that is afforded to the client because 
you know, stuck to your guns and argued something that while it's not always the prettiest thing to argue where you're pointing fingers at people and saying they've done wrong, that's what should have happened. Um, but he still walked away and didn't have to serve any time in jail. Yes, he walked away with a criminal record, but he was satisfied with the result and you spared him from having, having to go to jail. So in the end, it worked out. You are driven for your clients uh, to ensure that they have all the benefit of the law, the benefit of the Constitution, and the benefit of the Charter. Uh, it's lucky that we had you here today. Oh, it was wonderful to be here. A lot of times people are going to say, oh, how do I get a hold of Leora? Oh, if please. Yeah. So that was the other thing I was going to say, and I took a note of it, is that uh, the best thing you can do for yourself, I find, in pretrial motions is engage with others. Right. So I always bounce off ideas. I have the go to people on speed dial. You know, who do I want to run this argument by? And sometimes when you talk it out, you think of new things. People have it from different perspectives. You know, my husband's my sounding board, you know, no legal training. But sometimes just talking it out allows you to come up with greater ideas or maybe that argument you thought was really wonderful. Isn't that great, actually? Um, you know, the, the friend who's always the devil's advocate. Yeah, but what if uh, you need one of those in your roster of people to call as well? So have your people that you want to call. I'm always available to young lawyers who want to ask questions or email me or call me. Please call, email. Uh, I'd love he to hear from them and, and I'd love to sort of bounce off ideas with them. Thank you. You're the best. Thank I you. appreciate it. Thank you. It was wonderful. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. A shout out to our fantastic producers, Xenia Sefna and Jason Cooper. For more free legal education and to check out what we've been doing for the past 10 years, go to thelawgarage.com. That is thelawgarage.com.